All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Keel Conversations. I am your host, Mark Champagne, and it is my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. Today, I'm chatting with Chip, who is a New York Times bestselling author, hospitality entrepreneur, and leader at the forefront of the sharing economy. At age 26, he founded Joie de Vivre Hospitality and turned it into the second largest boutique hotel brand in the US. Chip is now the strategic advisor for hospitality and leadership at Airbnb. He is also the recipient of the hospitality's highest honor, the Pioneer Award, and is about to release a book titled Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, which really encompasses his full journey from start to right where we're at right now. I have to say, this was one of those books that was really hard to put down. It doesn't matter what age you're at, it's just packed full of of knowledge and and wisdom. And and honestly, I feel like that's how this conversation went down. I, I just felt like every word coming out of Chip's mouth was just packed full of authentic, real wisdom and insight and knowledge. So I'm really excited that we're able to capture this conversation and provide it to all of you. So please, I encourage you all to take a look at his work. Uh, The book is coming out in a few days. The links are all in the show notes and enjoy this chat. Before we dive into this conversation, please do leave a review if you're loving these chats. They do go a long way. And lastly, this podcast is being supported by Keo, which is our mental fitness app. All of these incredible guests ended up in app to help guide you through your daily reflections. So if you're interested in taking that for a spin, head over to the Apple App Store, search KYO, and you will see Keo pop up. Thank you so much. And as always, really appreciate your time, your attention, and have the absolute best day yet. are you? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think that I would call myself just being, I'm a curious white boy. Um, (laughs) Where does that come from? Um, That is literally my nickname uh, in high school. I went to Snoop Dogg's high school in Long Beach, LBC. Um, He was a few years behind me, but it just tells you um, it was a very multicultural school. I've always been a curious person. And what was beautiful about being a minority as, as a white person um, in this uh, inner city school was it allowed me to be curious about other people uh, in a way that I might not have been if I'd been in a more homogeneous school. Interesting. Interesting. So just, just to backtrack a bit, let's just set the stage a little bit on, um, I mean, you've got a lifetime of, of work here, obviously. So that could be a few podcasts, let's just say, but just for everyone listening to provide a bit of perspective on like, what is your, what, what does your path look like? Well, I, uh, I, uh, went to college thinking, first of all, I wanted to be a writer when I was, uh, about 12 and my, my parents said writers are poor or psychotic or most or both. And I didn't know what <laughs> meant it at age 12, but I like, okay, it didn't sound good. 
So I, I got very focused in college, went to Stanford and, and went to Stanford Business School straight from undergrad, focused on commercial real estate, was going to be a real estate developer and did that for the first two or three years out of business school, um, but was bored. And um, right after my 25th birthday, I started developing a plan for a boutique hotel company. Uh, and I decided to call it Joie de Vivre, which is not a very practical name for a company. <laughs> Joy of life in French, hard to spell, hard to pronounce. Um, but it, you know, our mission statement was also the name of the company. Uh, mm -hmm. And long story short, is I, I I did that for fifty. Uh, I'm sorry, I did that for twenty four years. Uh, created fifty two boutique hotels, uh, so we became the second largest in the U.S. And there, I have to stop you there because uh, I mean, when, when when your publisher reached out and sort of doing the research, we had just stayed at the one of the San Francisco locations, uh, the, the Japanese inspired Kabuki. What's the name of that one? The Hotel Kabuki. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, like, of course, that's happening, right? <laughs> I mean, anyway, all to say, beautiful place. Thanks. Well, you know, it, I loved it. <clears throat> it's funny. I think in our work, we can have one of three relationships with our work. It's either a job, a career, or a calling. And I, I put a lot of things in the shape of a pyramid. I, I wrote a book called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. So I'm a, a big fan of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And if you were to put job, career, calling into a pyramid, job would be at the base, career would be in the middle, and calling is the lucky thing that many of us, some of us get to experience. So this was a calling for a long time until literally in the course of about a year, it went, it, it like gravity came <laughs> to cold and it went from being a calling to a job. And um, I ultimately sold the company uh, in the midst of the great recession. And then a couple years later was asked by the Airbnb founders to help them guide their company. And this was five and a half years ago. Interesting. Yeah. And that, essentially launched a whole other loaded chapter in your life, right? Yeah. I was I was the boy wonder when I started my company at age 26. And when I joined Airbnb, it was a, a you know, I was twice that age. I was 52, surrounded by 26-year-olds. <laughs> so there's some, <laughs> some karmic thing happening there uh, that I was surrounded by people who were um, dramatically younger than me, not just a generation younger, but typically they were two generations younger. So I was the boomer and they were the millennial. And um, I was supposed to be the mentor of Brian, the CEO, and I was the person helping us move from being a tech company to being a hospitality company. I was the head of global hospitality and strategy. But long story short is within the first week, I realized, oh my gosh, I am an idiot when it comes to anything related to technology or cultural trends for millennials, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when I came to realize I was not the traditional elder of the past who was spouting wisdom from the pulpit, but I was really what I call a modern elder, which is as much a, an intern or a student as, as they are a mentor or a sage. Sure. And what an intro, I mean, I just thought, found it fascinating just how both those worlds just kept kind of colliding that from an outside perspective, you would think they're just polar opposite, right? But um, you do a really good job on, on bringing those together. And, and we'll dive more into that. Before doing that, I, I definitely want to probe a little bit more into you know, where all this is coming from. I mean, you, you mentioned curiosity at you know very young age. And I, I'd imagine that curiosity is, is kind of what's gotten to where, where you are right now, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it seems like with, with the hotels, then you're right back into it. 
you know, I, you know, the thing that's about interesting about curiosity is it's a it's um it's a quality that we see in young children, um, and we we almost praise them for it. We almost we really want them to ask, you know, why is the sky blue or why does a banana turn from green to yellow um, and, and then to brown um, or black? I, I think there's an element of when you're young, you're willing to ask a, a lot of why and what if questions. And as you get older, you ask more what and how questions. And what and how questions are sort of optimization questions. But what, why and what if questions aren't about optimization. They're really about asking the bigger questions in life. And sure. I think what happens is we, as we move into adulthood, especially at your age, Mark, you're 34 and moving forward, I'd say for you, for the next dozen years, it's a really slippery slope of the fact that we get more and more focused, um, partly because of efficiency need. We're, we're, you know, we've been accumulating jobs and responsibilities and accept children. And <clears throat> there's an element of just in order to juggle it all, you can't ask why and what if questions because they're somewhat inefficient questions. Yeah. Uh, and, and so what happens is people get on this path to, and they find themselves in their mid forties Oh, burdened by so much, but with such a narrow path of <clears throat> how they look at their day and how they think of things, curiosity is an opening up. Um, and when I, when I say an opening up, it's sort of curiosity allows you to think bigger. Um, and, and as such, it, it isn't all that efficient. And, and therefore, people in midlife spend less time with it. But um, the beautiful thing about curiosity is... Uh, Curiosity's cousin is serendipity. <laughs> what I mean by that is the truth is that when you start down a path in a curious way, um, be prepared for some synchronicity or serendipity to show up in terms of little callings that set, that are being sent to you that um, are almost breadcrumbs that are helping you get to a place that you're supposed to get to. Now, in most of our lives, we don't even notice the breadcrumbs. We don't have time for that. But all of this speaks to the broader question of you know, the thing that I like in my life is I've been constantly curious. I find it an elixir for life. And it's led me to some opportunities along the way that have been quite beautiful. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I have to second some of those comments because just by the nature of the work that that I'm doing with, with Keo and, and the team, we're just surrounded by big reflective questions all the time. And what's interesting is that we're, and, and you alluded to it, just the, the team's all around the same age as well. We constantly have to actually remind ourselves to listen to our own advice and the people that we're interviewing because we are, we're getting trapped into, okay, no, no, we need to, you know, we need to work on this next release or this, that, and, and, and we don't pull out to take that time to reflect a little bit. Right. Which is, is obviously led with with powerful questions. Usually, I think just one one quick fact. There are a lot of t- the reflective questions don't have to be like Bill Gates has a practice of once once a year he goes off to a cabin in the woods uh, for a week by himself, and and you know it doesn't have to be quite that dramatic. It literally could be um, making the choice that instead of driving to work every day on the same path. One day a week, you are going to take a Lyft or an Uber, and you're going to spend the money of of uh, a 25 minute 
drive with someone driving you. And during that 25 minutes, you could meditate. You could actually use that time to reflect on big questions. You're not going to have a lot of time for the answers to those big questions if it's only 25 minutes. But it, it, you know, you can, in essence, you can organize your life such that in the course of your life, you create gaps and spaces. Um, for some people, it's it's taking the Sabbath. It's like that. It's that seventh day, whether that's a Saturday or yeah. a Friday, or a Friday in some cases, where you just take the space for um, there to be some time time and space for refle- for reflection. So it doesn't have to be dramatic, you know, uh, you know, vipassana silent retreats for ten days. I mean, it could be something you just weave into your life on a regular basis. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it's it, you nail it. It's the space, right? We just need to give ourselves the space, and and people know this too, right? Because you you hear it all the time. What like those big ideas come up in the shower? Well, because you know you, you've you're not sitting there cranking through a to do list, right? It's you've got a bit of space there. So the more you can inject that in, I think I think the better. And I love how you framed up that. Because that's that's what we're trying to do as well. Is we're trying to show that you know there are mental fitness practices out there that anyone can do. You don't have to wait until you're on top of a mountain in a robe meditating. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not you know a, a reality for most people. So then, how can you find those moments every day throughout wherever you're living? Right. So great advice. Thank you for that. Yeah. The uh, b- before diving into what I kind of termed up as transfer of knowledge, which, which leads into a lot of the themes in, in, in your book. I just wanted to talk about one characteristic I noticed about you, Chip. And, and again, kind of those serendipitous moments. Um, once this podcast was booked in, you know, I started doing the research, obviously, and it, it just started actually naturally coming up. I was listening to um, Tim Ferriss, as I, I often do, and he was interviewing um, Liz Lambert. And Lo and behold, Chip, your name comes up. <laughs> I don't know if you if you heard that podcast, but I did. Yeah. You did. Okay, good. So th- the reason I bring it up is because this came up on on numerous other occasions through the rest of the research. And there's this element of respect that I feel people use when talking or when your name is is is, is in the conversation. And I'm just I'm just wondering, where is all that coming from? I mean, that that's I can only hope to have respect like that uh, as I grow older and, and and go through the rest of this this journey. But did you know? Was that baked into you as a, as a young child? Is it something that you just prioritized and it's part of your personality? Because it's it's overwhelmingly um, apparent in in the research. Thank you. Well, um, thank you. It's great to hear. Um, you know, what goes around comes around. I, I, you know, I used to, um, talk about karmic capitalism, um, which really is about what goes around, come around, comes around. It just, the question is that comes around may take a while. So yeah. <laughs> is, yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you, if you do good things in the world, sometimes it takes a while for it to come back to you, but, uh, you know, hopefully you didn't do the good things in the world for the sake of some bartering, uh, arrangement. I guess I, back to my, you know, my high school years, the fact that I, I really felt a sense of um, what it meant to be the other means there's an element of having a respect for people, um, not just because of the color of skin or sexual orientation, gender, uh, race, or, or, you know, religion. 
but more for just different difference of who we are. Each of us, there's a oneness that, that sort of connects us all, uh, like a, tr- a a root system to a, in a forest. But each of us is a separate tree, and there's an element that each one of us has some different and unique qualities. And I'm fascinated by what makes someone unique. Um, and in fact, I would rather have someone amplify that than have them try to look like the tree just next to them. And as such, that that sort of curiosity um, about people, I think, comes through. And so I think that help, that's part of the reason why people respect me is because I have a tendency to respect people on a one, one-on-one basis. So it, it, it's a, it is that karma coming back. But it's also, I think, the fa- fact that, you know, one of the things that – I think as you get older, you really you really appreciate is your own presence, your, how you embody presence. You know, what does presence mean? Presence. Well, first of all, it's the it's the opposite of absence. Yeah, fair. <laughs> and, and absence is really what we are often with each other when we're distracted with our smartphones and, or distracted with our own thoughts. And when you're in that state of absence it's obvious to the other person. And um, so one of the things that I think I've tried to do in the course of my life is to know that when I am here now in this moment with you, I will do my best to not distract myself with other things. Now, this is a hard, this is a very hard practice when you're as busy as I, at least as I, I am, I'm just going to speak for myself. Sure. Because, you, you know, there's an element of trying to do two things at once that it feels a bit like being, you know, trying to run the Ironman or, it, you know, it's, ah, you know, can, how many more things can I fit in at all at once within one hour? And yet the thing that you don't recognize is what's the mental, emotional and psychic toll that takes on you Yeah, uh, when you're trying to multitask in a way that starts to become obvious to the other person that you don't have presence. And when someone does have presence, there's a state of attention that you're at, mm-hmm. at, you know, at, you're attending to the other person that a person feels. And when you feel that, especially when it's in a mentor mentee relationship, um, it's, it's so scarce in our society today that it's noticeable and very much appreciated. I love that. I love all of it. And I, I think the other element there is, you know, when you're, you're not mentally checked in or when you're trying to set up your, your hour of multitasking, I mean, you're, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure mentally, right? It's, it's so rare to actually accomplish everything and accomplish it well that mentally you're, you're, you're setting yourself up in, in, in a negative state. And then now to your point, you know, in your interactions, all of that's coming through, right? Yeah, I think um, one of the things we don't we don't have metrics for. I wrote a, I read it. I read. I, I gave a TED talk. I didn't. Hopefully, I didn't read it. Um, <laughs> I gave a TED talk in 2010 about you know what's most valuable in life is often the things that we can't measure very well. And one of the things that's hard to measure is what toll you take on yourself when you try to do too many things at once. And, Ultimately, you see the side effects of it. Like, okay, well, I need to, I need two drinks at the end of the day to just get through it all, or um, my my sh- my shoulders and neck feel like they're just one big hard rock, or um, I don't sleep well at night, or whatever the reasons are. There's an element of my gosh, there's there's ex- there's the psychic toll 
of how you live your life shows up in all kinds of ways. Um, and uh, so I think that, you know, taking, taking note of that and, no, and, and, and getting clear on what are the things that help to um, pay yourself back, because it's almost like you're creating a debt that's only getting worse. So if, if, you, if you continue to push yourself extremely hard and without recognizing the, the warning signs, you get to a place of emotional, spiritual, mental bankruptcy. Um, and that's when the debt comes due. And, that, and so, you know, what we need to be able to see is even though it's hard to measure, uh, although I think you have, you have means of doing that better than I did back in my era, I, I think being able to try to understand, even if it's just taking an inventory on a weekly basis, you know, how do I feel this week? You know, how, how fresh do I feel? How engaged do I feel? These are the kinds of things that we need to sort of evaluate because we don't have a lot of thing, a lot of metrics in society for us to understand it. Well, you, you just really provided the, the probably the perfect transition to what I wanted to talk to you about next. And, and, and it also sets up, I, I, re, I just want to share a very short story about a, a situation I went through earlier this year that leads into your work and actually what you just said now. So I participated in, in the, the first all men's retreat that I've ever been on called every man. And again, uh, you just nailed it. Those questions that you just, that you just left with us were, were part of that experience, right? It's, it's how do you come out and, and take off that mask that a lot of us that are men are, are carrying or have on our face and really dive into like, how, how are we feeling and how does the body feel, right? Get out of the head. And one of the experiences that we went through, I'll never forget the emotion attached to this. So you have to imagine we're, we're maybe two, three hours outside of New York in this barn. It's a nice little facility or nice property. Um, and there's 50 men in a, in a round circle. This is day two. We've gotten to know each other, but for the most part, people don't know, you know, people personally, let's, let's say, but we've connected through these, these workshops and the facilitators ask the four oldest men to come up into the center of the circle and they're, and they're lined up in a line. Then they ask the four youngest men to come up and they're face to face about a, f- a foot apart, staring at each other in their eyes, which on day one was really awkward. We all had to do that. But by the time we got to day two and got through some of that stuff, um, it was actually felt uh, good because there was a connection there. Right. And so the other 45 men in that circle experiencing just them standing there looking into their eyes, emotions start, start flowing, right? And the question that was asked was to the, to the elder, and there was a little bit of a speech before that, you know, we really were starting to lose touch and respect for our elders. And the question to the elder was, what wisdom do you want to share with the person in front of you? And I'm almost getting emotional thinking about it right now. It was, it was just so powerful. And I bring that up for everyone listening because a lot of the experience and emotion I felt reading your latest book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, those emotions were very similar because you can't help but feel, you know, Chip, you've, you've lived a, a life of so many different experiences and they're just coming through and you're transferring that and you're learning at the same time. So 
I just wanted to set the stage a little bit with a, with a personal experience and, and get your thoughts on either that or uh, just diving into the the creation of this topic. Sure. I mean, uh, let's also say that the word elder uh, is fraught with um, all kinds of baggage. And, sure. and not, that's not true maybe 100 years ago, but today it is. And it's partly because we think of elder and elderly as the same word. But um, let me let me give you just a, 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 an interesting data point on this. Uh, the average age of a person going into a nursing home uh, in the ni- in fifty years ago, basically, was about uh, was age sixty five, and today it's eighty one. And and then the truth is, eighty one even sounds low. It feels like people go into a nursing home at eighty five or ninety, maybe. So the difference between elder and elderly is pretty substantial in the sense that an elder frankly is someone who is older than maybe a generation older than the most of the people that surround them so you literally could be an elder uh, at age 40 if you're surrounded by 25 or 30 year olds um, it, what happened for me was i was asked to to join airbnb um, by the founders and brian the co-founder and ceo wanted me to be his mentor um, and, uh, being a longtime boutique hotelier, I was supposed to help the company, uh, become a hospitality company as well as be in charge of strategy and a few other things. What became clear to me pretty quickly was there were, there are, all, there are a lot of areas in the company that I was needed that was, they're not part of my scope of work. And some of them had to do with helping people like create a learning and development program for the for the company such that 28 year olds could teach 24 year olds. So what I saw very much was um, an environment where everybody was running around as quickly as possible to get things done, but nobody was asking the bigger why and what if questions that helped us to take a step back. And so, so what does it mean to be an elder in that environment? I ultimately realized I started calling myself the modern elder um, which to me is uh, someone who is as much a, uh, a, sa- a student as they are a sage or, or an intern as they are a mentor. But the big point is that the fact that I was able to be in a mutual mentoring relationship with people, I taught them a little EQ, emotional intelligence, because that's frankly something you pick up over the course of your lifetime. And they taught me a little DQ, digital intelligence. So we had almost like an implicit trade agreement, EQ for DQ. Um, and that I think is the future of work. We have five generations in the workplace for the first time. And all of us, it's like an intergenerational potluck. We all have something to bring to the table. And what we need to do is create an environment where that kind of age diversity is perceived as one of the other forms of diversity that's just, that's just as important in the workplace as gender or race or, or anything else. So how did you, because I imagine when you first said yes to to be a mentor to, to Brian, you probably didn't expect all of the rest that was to come, right? True. So, and, and you you mentioned already, even in this this conversation, just the idea of, of people being absent. And a lot of that comes with just the the society that we're in right now and and being so hyper connected with everything like how did you process that personally because you've through your experience have have figured out that that is actually not a great thing right and and seem like you've managed your relationships with whether it's technology or others to again get to that point of really 
high respect with with your with your peers and people that that surround you. So how did you go into an environment where that's almost the opposite, right? Not to say there's no respect. Uh, that's not what I'm trying to get at. But just again, that almost there's got to be a, a sense of heightened uh, absence, let's say, in uh, everyone running around as you're kind of describing it. You know, I think. Um so my evolution, and I write about this in my, in my next book, which is called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. My um, arc of uh, experience, the arc of how this worked for me was, uh, there were really four parts to it. The first thing is I, I had to, in my role as a modern elder, meaning I was older than everybody else there, and I had some wisdom I could provide, but there were a bunch of things I had to learn. My first lesson was I had to evolve my identity. Um, in, in my case, quite specifically, I was a CEO of my own company. I'd sold it. I'm now coming in to help these three founders, uh, young founders of Airbnb who are 21 to 23 years younger than me. Um, there are a bunch of things. My, my, my history of being a CEO of my own company was relevant, but not. it's a part of my identity I had to get rid of. I, I needed to be the coach of these people or what I call the that's the guide on the side as opposed to the sage on the stage. And what that meant was I needed to really right-size my ego and recognize that I needed to evolve who I was, uh, being more of a support than the person who got the acclaim. And that was fine. I, that actually took a while for me to get used to that, but I got, I got used to it. It meant in, in, in meetings, um, if I heard Brian say something in an, a leadership meeting, you know, I would, I would never, you know, this is obvious, but, you know, reactivity will sometimes do things that are, you know, are, are not the smartest thing. He'd say something in a meeting and I'd want to react and say, and, and help him reframe what he just said. But rather than doing that, I would, I would mentor him privately, but I would intern publicly. And what mm. that meant was, um, there were a lot of people in the company that I was mentoring and it was 98% them coming to me and maybe 2% me going into them and asking, you know, I see you're struggling with something. Could I help you? Um, that, that, that mentoring process was something that I did as privately as possible because, frankly, you don't want your father in a meeting correcting you. Um, and sure. The, the, the interning publicly, the mentoring privately, interning publicly meant that I was open to being the most curious uh, or the dumbest person in the room. And when it came to certain subjects, I was the dumbest person in the room because I didn't understand technology like a lot of the people in the room. So I, I did my, sometimes, you know, the stupidest questions I learned over time, okay, I don't need to bring, bring that one up with everybody in the room. I can ask someone later. But there, sometimes what I would say and questions I would ask in that why and what if kind of four-year-old kind of way would help us to see blind spots in the company that, that, in our process of optimizing, nobody had noticed. And at the end of the day, that helped me to move from the evolve state to the learn state, which is the second lesson of the modern elder. And to be in that beginner's mind curiosity was what helped me to get to a place where people didn't see me as the, the expired, you know, carton of milk, uh, <laughs> which is what you could be as you get older. It's like, okay, you have a lot of knowledge, but it's all sour. Uh, and it smells, but instead I was really the freshest mind and I was the fresh bot, you know, bottle or curtain of milk that led me to the third lesson is to collaborate. And one of the things that's really true of people as they get older, 
is this is not true of everybody, but generalization wise, <clears throat> studies have shown this. We get better at collaborating as we get older, partly because we just understand the pattern recognition of other humans. Uh, additionally, it's because we move out of the hubris place to more of a hum- humble place, uh, partly because we've learned some lessons along the way that we don't know it all. So yeah. being a, co- a great collaborator is something that you can do as you get older. And since teams are such a fundamental piece of the business world or organizational world, all of a sudden you start to shine a little bit because you're creating some invisible productivity to your, to your team because you're helping people collaborate better. And then finally, the last lesson is the one that most older people would do first, which is the counsel or the coach or the mentor role. Being collaborate is a team sport. Counsel is a one-on-one sport. And so, but that if your first thing you do as an older person coming into an organization is just start trying to counsel everybody, um, you haven't necessarily earned that right yet. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe older, but if you're if you're just saying because you're older you have that right, I don't think that's true. I think you have to actually, as you were talking about Tim Ferriss and Liz Lambert earlier, you have to have people have a thirst for what you have to offer, and um, and that's really what I've been able to do throughout my career, luckily, but now at an older age, you know, I'm 57, uh, I can, you know, I think people sort of feel that embodiment of like, this guy has some wisdom in him and I want to crack it open. And this guy, Chip, um, this curious white boy, Chip, um, (laughs) has some wisdom and I want to, I want to crack it open. And what I will, I will just say as a last thought, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm droning on here is that I think I'm best when it's not that someone's going to crack me open since they're going to get all my answers. They're going to crack me open so that they get me to offer them some catalytic questions because the best mentors are not people who just dispense answers to you. They are people who help to train you to think differently and to ask deeper questions, reflective questions of yourself and a catalytic question can be so much more valuable than an answer. You know, um, as Pablo Picasso once said long ago, I hate computers. They only give me answers. Um, and, and that's true of Google. Google, Google is not, you know, Google is smart as can be, but not so wise because Google will provide you all the answers, but not those reflective questions. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) <laughs> there's you've said so much there that was so so valuable um one of them being an answer to a question that actually my father-in-law wanted me to ask and again it, it comes back to you know how do you approach um some of the the younger crew to i guess let's use the example you know something was said in, in a meeting and you you reacted internally saying uh, you know there's probably a better way to handle that um, but I'm assuming then when you went to go speak to Brian, all those three other steps, the rest of the work, the work had already been done so that you could then have a more frank conversation. And that to me, I, I think that answers the question that, that my father-in-law was asking was like, how do you, how do you approach it without shutting people down? Right. Because you're, because you do yeah. have a ton of wisdom and, and, and knowledge to offer, but I think to your point is you can't just, 
you know, regurgitate that or, or throw it all up on the table before that trust or That's the so presence cool. is kind of owned, right? Just throwing it all up on the table, regurgitating and throwing it all. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, one of the things I try to uh, articulate when I'm first getting to know someone, whether it's in a mentor role, and by the way, I'm not a coach. I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm, never charged anybody for anything when it comes to my mentoring or coaching. I coach a bunch of people, mentor people, a bunch of people now um, who are totally unrelated to Airbnb, totally unrelated to any investments I have in companies that they have. But I just do it out of, because I like to do it. Um, But the thing I, when I say I like to do it, I, the first thing I try to get clear with them is do they have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset? And we, and the truth is you could have fixed in some parts of your life and growth in other parts of your life. This comes from a theory uh, from Carol Dweck, a psychologist from Stanford who wrote a book called Mindset, where she was able to show that um, if you're constantly in the mode of trying to prove yourself, you're likely in a fixed mindset. And your way of thinking is you don't want to create a sandbox that's very large because you don't want to fail. And that's fine. And there's certain parts of life where that may be actually a a good mode of operating. and yet with a growth mindset, you're not trying to prove yourself. You're trying to improve yourself. Therefore, you, you play in a bigger sandbox. You're willing to fail. You're willing to try things partly because you don't see the testament of your esteem or a sense of, you know, are you learning based upon your results in terms of, the, you know, did you work? Sure. But it's more about are you, are you on a learning path? Now I say that only to say that if when so if someone is really living a fixed mindset, there it's not neat, that's not an easy person to mentor. Um, if they've come to me and they want me to mentor them, and I see they have a fixed mindset, we start with that because if if they don't start to evolve out of the fixed mindset, they will be very reactive to anything I'm saying to them that seems constructive or you know potentially things that they're not doing well, um, and so that's the first step getting them to that growth mindset. If they get to the growth mindset, then they're much more open to the feedback. So how do you get someone from a fixed to a growth mindset? I think helping them to see their mindset. Mindsets are like water for a fish. It's, it is the the way you see the world. It's almost as if it's invisible and yet other people can see it in you. And so this is where help you as an observer being able to help someone see some of their mindset uh, constraints that they're putting on themselves um, is is the is to me the first step. And so it, there's a it, it's such a longer answer than that, but that's what I'll say for now. No, that's great. I appreciate it. Um, one thing I want to talk to you about, and we're going to shift a little bit more into you personally. Um, but you t- you've you've talked a lot about reflection and a lot about the power of, of questions and. I have a quote written down here that uh, I really love, and I'd, lo- I'd love for you to speak about it a little bit. And said, maybe life is just a series of peaks and valleys, but as you get older, you appreciate the scenery a little bit more and can guide others along the way. So when you think of your own personal reflection, and we talked a little bit before starting to record how, the, you know, the importance of, of the morning and whatnot, how has your reflection evolved over the years? Um, you know, it's a beautiful question. Thanks, Mark. Um, I, there's a a great quote from 
Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Um, it's three sentences long. Probably the most powerful three sentences I've ever read in any book. He says before, or he wrote, before stimulus and res- between stimulus and response, there is a space. Hmm. In that space is your power to choose your response. Wow. In your response lies your growth and your freedom. So in essence, what he's saying is we can be reactive or responsive. Uh, the amount of space we put between the stimulus and the response is the difference between reaction and response and being responsive. And responsiveness usually allows for some reflection. That reflection is what helps allow you to have the growth and freedom to see what see both how you're reacting, but also to see what your choices are. Um, so I would just say today, you know, looking back, I, I wrote a LinkedIn article recently about the advice I would give to a 10-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, and a 50-year-old, given that I'm 57. And the advice, advice is different at each different age. And I think the advice I would say across all of those ages is the the petty little things that you're worrying about right now that happened in the past week in the course of your lifetime may not be that important. So the question you should ask yourself whenever you're fixated on something that's not working right now is in the course of my lifetime, how important is this? Hmm. Powerful. Put it in that frame. Most things all of a sudden diminish in size pretty quickly. Um, and it's not that it won't go, it will go away completely, but it will maybe stop putting, you know, stop becoming this obsession. Uh, and so I think reflection is helped by a variety of things for me. It's everything I do meditate and that helps. I try to do it in the morning. I, when I can, I do it in the afternoon as well. Um, being in nature allows you to see things bigger than yourself. Um, also sometimes allows you the spaciousness to think bigger thoughts. Um, sometimes exercise uh, and being in a place where you can get out of your mind and you can just sort of get into the flow of some kind of exercise is, is another thing that can help to create some reflection. Putting yourself in environments that are unfamiliar allow you to move out of your habit zone. Um, so, all of these things can help you know, re- you reflect. For me, I write. I love writing. And you, you were talking a moment ago. I, I'm, I am really at the – right now, I had a, an era between age 45 and 50, and then I wrote a little book that I gave to 100 friends, including Tim Ferriss. In fact, Tim and Liz talked about the fact that they were at my 50th birthday party at Burning Man, and um, they both got this book that I wrote. And I've, you know, I've written five books for the public, but I've written – a couple of just privately for myself, and then I shared it with a few friends. This book was called Flatline on the Fault Line, and it was based mm-hmm. on what happened between 45 and 50 for me. And it was that was a really rough period. That was the worst five years of my life by far, and for a variety of reasons, which I don't need to go into. But what I did was I reflected on it. I literally, for me, reflecting on it is not – it means I actually wrote about it. And then I even shared it with friends. For some, they're like, wow, Chip, this is a dark little book. Uh, <laughs> um, and that's true. It was. And yet I've now given that book to a handful of friends who I you know, who I didn't know 
almost eight years ago when I gave that book away, but I've met them more recently. Or for example, someone who used to be a mentee of mine and I worked with me for a few years has been suicidal recently and he's been really in a difficult place. And so I, I gave him this book and I said, this is, this is how I got through a difficult time. And so I think the, the ability to build wisdom and, you know, my new book is called wisdom at work. The idea of the idea of building wisdom is to actually use all of the ingredients of your life as uh, an ability to emotionally and mentally compost something that actually is fertile ground for how you live your life moving forward. And it's sort of learning from that experience, reflecting on it and getting better as a result of it. And then the trajectory of your life even gets better. So I think that that's a pretty, pretty abstract way of, of putting it. But I think the idea that people have to create, create spaces in their life to be reflective is the first step. Um, and then also when you create space, sometimes that all, bunch of emotions catch up with you. That's another thing is yeah. my last book was called Emotional Equations. It's all about trying to make sense of the emotions going on inside of you. You know, some, some of us are workaholics or whatever we are, whatever our ism is, it has to do with running away from something. And when you create space for reflection, sometimes that means, you know, bad memories, bad feelings, etc. finally can catch up with you. And so you have to have some, a way for you to, you to process that as well. Very well said and so much value in that. And I can agree just again, given we're working really with a lot of questions, you know, something as, as simple, but yet complex of a question, like, are you happy could, you know, lead down a numerous amount of paths. Right. And I think what you nailed is that you, you have to be ready for that and be ready to process it. And it's not necessarily a bad thing if the answer is no to that question. Right. Um, but you have to unpack it and yeah. then you need the time you need the space and, and some energy to, to do that. Yep. So I want to ask you then when, you know, when you do have those feelings where the shoulders and the neck's getting tight or you're starting to, you know, your sleep's a bit off, what, what ingredients in that routine have fallen off the, um, off the radar? Where do you think, like, what are the non-negotiables for, for Chip when it comes to your, your mental fitness? Um, I think probably exercise and meditation are the two things I hold on to no matter what. Um, okay. And there, it's interesting. I had never thought of this before, but I think they, it, I'm glad that those are the two because they, they're addressing different things. Um, they both they both get me out of my mental um, uh, sort of military march <laughs> um, uh, or being on the treadmill. The meditation slows my mind down, um, and the exercise takes me out of my mind. Um, and mm. So there's, there's sort of opposite things. One's slowing me down. The other one's actually in many cases, speeding me up doing some exercise, but, but it's, it, it's, um, if it, that my body feels better as a result. So I think that the, um, if, if the two pieces you're talking about there, are, you know, what do, what do I do about my mind and what do I do with my body? 
to solve for that. Uh, you know, I, I like to get massages as well, but I think with doing just the massage re- regimen without actually doing the physical exercise um, doesn't, it, it, I'm not saying I shouldn't be rewarding myself. It's not, uh, I'm not yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that, there's a little bit of that in it too. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's just a massage. I gotta, I gotta, get, I gotta go, I gotta deserve that massage by working out. But I think the working out is a good thing because it actually helps your body to just get more limber, whether it's, I'm not, I'm not great at yoga. Um, but yoga can be so good for helping not just your body, but you're just, you're creating some spaciousness. But I love running and I love swimming and and I I do CrossFit and so those co- the the collection of those things certainly serve me well uh, and make my body feel better. Um, so yeah, perfect, perfect. Those are the things I try to do regularly, but I, those those are the ones I I just I do no matter what. No, and that's exactly that's exactly why I asked. And, and and there's some consistency on there with the the people I've I've, I've interviewed so far, and even for me personally. So so thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm going to start wrapping up just to respect, respect your time. But one of the questions I, I really wanted to ask was actually to get your questions and you've provided a few throughout this conversation, but if you really think about it, are there a few reflective questions that circulate around your life, either on a daily basis or during some of these bigger life-changing events that you've gone through that you could share with us? Let me give you a couple that just sort of come to mind immediately. The bigger reflective question that I, I think is really important for anybody probably about your age and beyond is, you know, what's your legacy going to be? You know, uh, Eric Erickson, the developmental psychologist said, um, I am what survives me. And the question is, what will survive you? And whether it's your children, whether it's um, some you know discover, scientific discovery, uh, I think part of the reason I like writing books is because books will survive me. Um, so I think that that's a that's a heady big question, uh, a much more pragmatic question, which I ask to those who report to me in, in jobs, is how can I support you? to do the best work of your life here at and fill in the blank. It could have been when I was founder and CEO of Joie de Vie for 24 years, or it could have been the last five and a half years at Airbnb. Um, so the reason I like that question is how do I help support you to do the best work of your life here at Airbnb, for example? Well, there's two parts to that question. The first part is how do I support you? And when, when your boss comes to you and said, how do I support you? And you fill in the blank, it's pretty valuable to realize, yeah. okay, I, you know, this, this, this boss is actually looking for me to succeed. They're not trying to catch me doing something wrong. And that there's no doubt that kind of endorsement that we're here to help you succeed is valuable. So no doubt. But the second part is actually a more subtle piece. And it's the one that actually has, I think, been most valuable for me on this one. How do I support you to do the best work of your life here at Airbnb? Well, it, what it the, baked into that premise or that question is you need to tell me how we create the conditions for you to do the best work of your life. You can't complain about me as your boss or us as a company about us being a terrible place to work. If you aren't able to articulate what things you need changed or improved in order for you to do the best work of your life, you can't be a martyr or a victim here. It's putting you in the position of helping us 
to create the conditions for you to flourish. But it's your responsibility. It is your responsibility to actually figure that out. And that's a, it's a, it's a tough one for some people because they've spent their life putting themselves in the role of being able to complain about someone else. And now, okay. Now someone may have five different things they need and we can only do two of the five. And then, then we get into the arm wrestling of, okay, so we're doing our best here. Can't have Mm -hmm. to three or four out of five instead of just the two. But even the conversation is is so provocative because it actually puts the person in the in the position of actually having to understand what it is they want their boss to do for them. Uh, and, but ultimately, when I say do for them. I don't mean do their work for them, but do for them to create the conditions for them to do their best work. Yeah. So I would just say that, that of, of all the things I've ever learned in business, that is probably the most powerful one. Because it then creates an environment where people take responsibility for their flourishing. All from the power of one question. That's what I love about this. It's it's so rich, right? Um, Chip, do you have one more? A third? You know, the, the third is, um, I, you know what? I'm going to throw it back at you, Mark. The, the question you started with today, who are you? Is that your question? Who are you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I think that's a great third one. Um, who are you is such a, you know, it's such a big open-ended question. And I think what is most important about that question is how do you define your identity? And what is predominant in how you define your identity? And I will say that, you know, again, coming from the place of the elder, so to speak, the first half of your life is about accumulating and the second half of your life life is about editing. (laughs) The first half of your life is about accumulating responsibilities, relationships, maybe children, jobs, um, uh, you know, titles, money, uh, things. And then sometime around 45 to 60 – when midlife crisis kicks in, um, although it start, it's actually midlife crisis is starting earlier now. Uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> um, yeah, I used to say you know midlife, midlife is a terrible period, and it is forty five to sixty five. Now it's actually thirty five to seventy five, and it's a, oh man. So I think the thing is interesting is when you realize that the first half of your life is accumulating, and the second half of your life is learning what's important, and then editing accordingly. This question about your identity, who are you, when it gets down to it, what is it that distills down to a word or maybe even three adjectives? Or if you were to have a name tag at a party and you could just say, who are you? And you were to put on a, a name tag, it has to be that, that, that concise. You know, it's, you, you can say whatever works for you. But for me, you asked me and I said, curious white boy. And actually, in some ways, I, I wouldn't say, you know, if you asked me tomorrow, I might, I would probably say a different answer. But I would say that, you know, sometimes what, who, who, it, who you are goes back to an age that's when you were quite a bit younger and you, before you accumulated all the stuff you accumulated. And sometimes what we have to do in our editing, editing process as, uh, you know, midlife and beyond is to start stripping away all of the stuff that is not you to get back to the essence of who are you? Yeah. And 
that process is so liberating. Uh, and sometimes that process happens out of um, crisis. Uh, someone has a heart attack and they you know, can't, they just have to give up a bunch of things that, they, that were part of their identity or their responsibilities. So I, I just think that that question's a, a provocative one. And the way I would do that question, you know, to make it even more pro- provocative, provocative is to have it be a, a question that someone asks you five times in a row and hmm. you could not answer the same way twice. So what would be interesting in this editing process, this distillation, is by the time you answer that question the fifth time in a repeating question kind of way, you probably will have gotten down to the essence of who you are. That is beautifully said. Um, and I mean, you essentially wrapped up the whole conversation full circle. I mean, I think the way you answered it uh, as the you know a curious white boy, I mean, reflecting back on our on the theme of this conversation, curiosity is just at the center of it and and your whole journey, right? in the book and really everything we've been talking about. So it, it's, I think it's bang on. And I'm, I, I've, I've always been amazed that because it's been about a hundred interviews now in the last, let's say year and a half. And the way that people answer that question is, is always so different. And I'm all, it, it's, and I purposely don't send that question out in advance. Right. And it's interesting to just to see, people how they start they start the answer i mean you i think you've thought about that a little bit throughout your journey but for for people that maybe haven't it's interesting to see how they start the answer and then where it where it ends um i, I don't go through five rounds uh, with people live on the podcast but i do usually do two or three maybe um and it's it's just such a fun process to to go through uh last question for you as as we sit here another beautiful morning you know, all said and done, what what makes you smile, Chip? You know, what, what, what makes me smile today is, um, I'd say, two predominant things. One is having the space to see beauty. Um, truly, I live half my half the time down in Mexico on a beach, and uh, we have a modern elder academy there where people come and learn how to embody what it means to be an elder the second half of their life. Um, a lot of what we do there is seek beauty inside ourselves and out there in nature. And so I, I, that, that brings a smile on my face. The other thing that brings a smile on my face um, is sort of the other piece of what we do at the Academy is when I help people, when I help someone feel and get better in their life, um, mm. that, you know, and whether that's my sons who I spent the last couple of weeks with, they, um, uh, they live in, in Texas, uh, in, in Houston and, you know, they're three and six. I love seeing their progress. Um, and, you know, just like I love seeing, you know, a mentee at Airbnb or I love seeing Brian Chesky who, you know, five and a half years after I started mentoring him is you know, one of the, you know, most acclaimed CEOs of his generation. Uh, and, you know, and he's come a long way. So I, you know, to me, I, I would just say that is, and, and, he, and he's and he is frankly I wouldn't I wouldn't have gotten involved with him five and a half years ago if I didn't see amazing raw material there in him and and a, and a phenomenal growth mindset. So yeah, I think that's what I'd answer. Love it. 
Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with uh, me and, and sharing your wisdom and all the life's lessons and, and ref- reflective practices and questions for everyone listening. Um, I'll include this on the show notes, but when is the actual book going to be available to the public? Yeah. So Wisdom at Work uh, launches on September 18th. And okay. um, it'll be an, an audible or audio version as well. And um, yeah. And the Academy is up and running right now. Is, uh, right? A six months of beta period, the first half of 2018, it opens it back again to the public in November. Um, okay. You can look at, uh, if you go to chipconley.com, you'll see th- sort of three websites all together. A, Ch- a Chip Conley site, a, a site for the book, Wisdom at Work, and then the Modern Elder Academy site as well. Yeah, and there's some great um, there's some great topics in there and, and different tracks, I guess you if, if if will or programs that people can sign up with. So I'm excited to hear a little bit more on how all that progresses. Yep, perfect. Thank you. Well, thank you, and again, a huge thanks for doing what you do. And um, you know, you said you, you you what puts a smile on your face is helping people. Uh, I mean, you've helped me today personally, and I can only imagine the people listening that. There are for sure insights coming out of this conversations and questions that will go along to help others around the world. So thank you for that. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. 